watchers in the fourth dimension. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And your legend seems violent and unpleasant and rather too convenient. Oh, wow. That was an impressive impression, Riley. This episode, as you may have guessed from Riley's vignette there, for want of a better term, we're going to be discussing Season 9's The Curse of Peladon. However, before we get into that, Riley's going to take a quick look at the mail, preferably in his normal voice. No promises. Adam Wright on Facebook comments about Colony in Space. He says, I love the beginning of this episode. Just because it brought back a mobile TARDIS, I just didn't need the master. He's like an ex, desperate for the doctor's attention. Yes, they do have that kind of charged chemistry between the two of them, don't they? The Demons on Facebook, Kieran James Evans says, Oh, Doctor Who does Quatermass in the pit. Classic, maybe a little longer than it needs to be, though. I don't know. I was happy to stay there a very long time. Dave Jones on Facebook says, One of my favorites to revisit. Nathan Laws says, Gotta say, the fangirling over the Delgado Master is a particular treat on these now. I still think that everyone is getting <laughs> upset about Joe not being a character that she wasn't conceived of. She was supposed to be a fairly dim character that wasn't really great at much. Yeah, that doesn't make for great viewing, but wishing for her to get more doesn't really fit when the only thing that she's ever shown to have any skill at is escapology. I really think that Dix and Letts made a real mistake there, but it's the character they gave us. Alan Seiler on Facebook also says, The element of the story that I love is that Doctor and Mrs. Haw- excuse me, Miss Hawthorne are presented more or less as equals, and she has the Doctor's respect. It's her warnings on the telly that sets the Doctor's involvement in the story. He may not agree with her beliefs, but very much respects her conclusions. And remember, she's one of the only people in this story to be able to resist the Master's hypnotism. Miss Hawthorne totally rocks. I can't wait for Julie to meet Amelia Ducat and Professor Rumford. So we have something to look forward to, Julie. I'm looking forward to more women who have a lot to do and a lot to say. It's going to be a little far off that's all the way in season 16, but definitely something to look forward to. In regards to the Evil of the Daleks animation, Beardo Beatnik on Instagram says, Just listen to this at work. You can hear the unadulterated exuberant joy from Julie as she gets another chance to glorify her Jamie love. (laughs) Absolutely. Always. Dave Columbus on Instagram says, This has always been one of my favorite Troughton stories. Love that it finally got the animation treatment. Can't wait to see the final battle. It was an excellent final battle animated. That is the mail. Thank you, Riley. And as a reminder, we do love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments, and questions. And obviously, we like to read them out on the show. So please do get in touch. Anyway, back to the Curse of Belladon. Kicking off with our behind-the-scenes information, this story has its origins in writer Brian Hale submitting two story ideas to the Doctor Who production office at the beginning of 1971. We, of course, last saw Hales as the scribe of the Seeds of Death. One of his two ideas, titled The Brain Dead, featured the return of the Ice Warriors, who of course he originally conceptualised. The other idea, The Shape of Terror, was a locked room mystery style story. Script editor Terence Dix was generally underwhelmed by both of these proposals, but nevertheless arranged a meeting between himself, Hales, and producer Barry Letts. During that meeting, a new storyline was devised which contained elements from both proposals. It was initially called The Curse, that became The Curse of the Peladons, 
and when the scripts were finally commissioned in May 1971, it was with the title of The Curse of Peladon, and the serial was slated to be the third of season 9. This serial saw the show take another step towards breaking away from the Earthbound format that had been the norm since Pertwee joined. Having included one-off world story in season 8, Hales' tale would be one of two set in the far future in season 9. The inclusion of the Ice Warriors was a very deliberate attempt on the part of the production office to embrace more of the show's past. However, they also decided to defy the audience's expectations by not having them as the villains of the story. Hales was asked to write his script in a way that no location filming would be required. This was because the serial was to be recorded in early winter, and the production team still had strong memories of the disastrous location shoot for the Claws of Axos the year before, which suffered from a freak snowstorm, heavy fog, and Katie Manning nearly contracting frostbite. The Curse of Peladon is the first serial to not feature any location filming whatsoever since Season 6's The Space Pirates. During recording, Letts and Dix also decided that over the course of the season, they wanted to alternate between adventures set on Earth and those on alien worlds. With that in mind, The Curse of Peladon was moved from third in the running order to second, swapping places with the Sea Devils. And as a result, this is the first instance of Doctor Who serials being recorded out of sequence. Assigned to direct the serial, we have Lenny Main, who is making his first contribution to the show. He will return twice more for season 11's The Monster of Peladon and season 14's The Hand of Fear. And yes, Don, he directed Zed Cars too. <laughs> Excellent. Joining his creative team for this story, we have Gloria Clayton as designer, who will also return for the Monster of Peladon. Barbara Lane makes her fourth appearance as costumer, and of course we have series regular Dudley Simpson returning as composer. Lenny Main also made a few big decisions during the production of the story, one of which was the casting of David Troughton as King Peladon. David Troughton was, of course, the son of former Doctor Who star Patrick Troughton, and coincidentally, he was also, at the time, the flatmate of future Doctor Who star Colin Baker. Another thing that came from Lenny Main was during recording, he was absolutely appalled when he saw what Barbara Lane had constructed for Alpha Centauri, believing that the costume was unambiguously phallic. No idea what he's talking about. No clue. To compensate, Lane added a yellow cloak because that totally made it better. <laughs> it certainly doesn't make it look like a broken condom. <laughs> I don't know why you would even think such a thing. Additionally, for Agador, Hales had originally envisioned an ape-like creature, but between Barbara Lane and Lenny Maine, the finished costume was more akin to the visage of a bear, sort of. Which is superior to an ape, but we'll get there. I agree with that. The serial itself was broadcast between the 29th of January and the 19th of February 1972. The first two episodes continued to draw in the large audiences that had watched The Day of the Daleks, over 10 million for each episode. However, there was large-scale industrial action around mining that caused periodic power outages as Britain was starting to run out of coal that impacted episode 3 and that caused viewing figures to be significantly lower for the last two episodes. We move into our short summary, which is my privilege to present this episode. In a story that features a memorable menagerie of creatures such as a giant green phallus in a cloak, a pair of arse warriors, a mutated head in a jar, and a thrift shop alf, we are given a thrilling story of Britain's entry into the European Economic Community, I, I mean Peladon's entry into the Galactic Federation. It's a tale of intrigue, as forces from both within Peladon and within the Federation attempt to sabotage the bizarrely feudal planet's entry application because politics. By the way, have these guys even developed space travel yet? Meanwhile, 
Our heroes are masquerading as officials from Earth, making poor King Peladon fall in love with Joe, whom he believes to be a princess, and makes the compelling argument that he has a connection with her for the sole reason that his mother was also from Earth. The Doctor undergoes trial by combat against He-Man from Wish.com, charms thrift shop Alf, and saves the day by unmasking the saboteurs, who bizarrely aren't who you would initially expect, and uncovers their nefarious plans. We all have a good laugh until the real delegate from Earth shows up and our heroes have to make a hasty exit. Oh, and their involvement was orchestrated by the Time Lords because… reasons? Still, at least we can all take comfort in the knowledge that Britain's time in the European Union ended well. I really don't see how you can summarize the story without once uttering the phrase STEEL CAGE MATCH, <laughs> but that's just me. <laughs> I feel like I was accurate there. Anyway, let's talk about it. Episode 1. I actually really enjoyed the beginning. We're starting to get these atmospheric openings. I know the demons was like that. I felt this went there as well. On first glance, I loved the costumes. And then I started to question it as I got further in because Peladon had these weird short skirt things with thigh highs. And I'm like, all right, thigh high boots for the king. Yeah, he was doing so well until he stood up. And then, oh, the shorts. <laughs> Questionable choice, your majesty. The imperial go-go boots. <laughs> and it reminded me of old Buck Rogers style comic costumes, where much in the same way you would occasionally have planets that looked very medieval, but with spaceships. Exactly. I like how we almost immediately meet Peladon's close advisors. We've got Hepesh, who's the superstitious high priest, and Torvus, the chancellor, who's the voice of reason. So obviously Torvus has to be killed quickly. I'm glad they did that because I tell you, if both of them were around, I could not tell them apart. <laughs> they looked exactly the same other than height. It is kind of a planet of prematurely graying gingers. It's the ginger badger look. <laughs> it is true. And then a whole bunch of gladiators because we needed to make sure that everyone knew that they were barbaric. Exactly. Why are they joining the Federation again? Oh yeah, minerals. But... I still enjoyed it. I like that kind of opening. They got straight to the point. You kind of understand what the big, you know, what's happening, what's going on, why are we even thinking about this? I enjoyed that. They did a really good job of setting this up. I like the lighting a lot. With the torches, it sets some atmosphere. I agree with that. Did anyone else get any enjoyment from seeing a miniaturized TARDIS on a miniature yes. set like in a, in a setting. That was so pleasant yes. to see that. Really wonderful. And very soon after that, we get probably the biggest laugh in the entire serial. Which is? When Joe says she was going to go on a date with Mike Yates. <laughs> <sighs> this goes back to the bonus episode that Julie and I did with J.M. Casey, where we did some big finish. And she again mentions going on a date with Mike Yates. And yes. I asked the question, do you think she knows that she's bearding for him? <clears throat> no. Sure hope so. Also, what I don't understand is how her outfit was going out on a date in 1970 or 80, whatever year. Because that is not what I would imagine a date outfit would be. Yeah, I don't have an answer for you on that, Julie. <laughs> that mystery was not explored in this episode. <laughs> uh, it did work well, though, to actually say that, hey, she's a princess. I'm like, probably good that she's not wearing a mini skirt and go-go boots and then pull <laughs> off trying to be a princess. Well, I don't know. The, the mini skirt and the go-go boots would have worked with Peladon, perhaps. It would have matched. All right. Speaking of fashion, I really dug the doctor in plaid. That was yes. a nice look for him. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm like, I'm done with the frilly shirts. Oh, that was such a good suit. I loved it. And when he takes it off, isn't that a new jacket as well? 
like a, a slightly different shade of red and a slightly different cut. I think so. It does look like that. Yes. I, I like that one a lot. I think that might be my favorite jacket to date. Absolutely. Yes, we talked about they're in a precarious spot and then they start rock climbing. And I'm yeah. going to say, as the person who rock climbs from this group, I do not ever want to rock climb in heels <laughs> and a dress. <laughs> Absolutely not. I love how the TARDIS falls off the precipice. It feels very, I guess, nostalgic for the Hartnell era where commonly the Doctor and the TARDIS crew were separated from the TARDIS and the reason they have to stay is because they can't get back. I love that. Could we backtrack just a little bit? Because I think something really important happened and it happens again later on in the serial. The Doctor is sorting out the TARDIS and Joe is getting a little impatient because she's got the big date, of course. In previous serials, I feel like the doctor, when she was showing her impatience, would have snapped at her. But instead, he says, I hope you're as in good condition when you are as old as she is. He says that not in a mean way, but in a playful way with a smile. And I feel like before he would have said something snarky and mean to her, but this time it was said playfully. And I think that's a really important thing because I think that happens again later in the serial. It happens a lot. I think... There are a couple instances where the doctor snaps at her, but it's in a moment of high tension. And he snaps, but he's not condescending. I don't think there's a single dick doctor moment in this serial. No, I don't think there is. It's wonderful. And we had all commented during Day of the Daleks how he was better then than he had been at all in season eight. So I think we're seeing a steady improvement to his character and his temperament. Don't get my hopes up. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I'm also glad that happened, and part of it is the fact that she was wearing such a long dress, but... As they were doing the rock climbing, they did a really good job of shooting that and not filming up her dress as they <laughs> like to film up Jamie's kilt back in the day. Or even up Joe's skirt in Day of the Daleks. Yes, we didn't need to see any of that. So I, I really appreciate that. I think they were trying to make some more conscious decisions on that type of filming and what costumes they were wearing. Anyway, they find a cave or tunnel thing. This feels like we are going back to a period of the show that we haven't experienced in a while. A doctor, companion or companions finding themselves in a strange place and like wandering around. It just I miss that wanderlust that the show I feel like is supposed to be a part of the show instead of, yep, we got a call from somebody and as a part of unit there we go we're going to drive over there this has got more adventure to it more exploration and discovery one thing i really like about that is we don't even find out that this might be a setup by the time lords until the very last minutes of the entire serial this just seems very much like they've just landed there and are now exploring and everything is back to how it was before the doctor's exile it's really nice throwback complete with losing the TARDIS. You've got that old school setup to go into the adventure. Exactly. And no shooting on location, just like old times. <laughs> yes. But I did like the model work a lot. Yeah, the model work was enjoyable. Yes, absolutely. So should we dive in really instead of beating around the jolly green giant dick and uh, <laughs> jump right in on Alpha Centauri? You want to jump right in on the giant green yeah, dick? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I actually found the voice to be more ridiculous than the costume. I agree with you, actually. I I mean, yes, it kind of looks a little phallic. And if you really like sit there and look at it, it becomes more obvious the more and more you look at it. <laughs> but it's the fact that the feet 
are also like testicles. And then you've got the little extra ones coming out the side to appeal to the hentai fans out there. <laughs> oh my god. And the veins don't help. And then the voice is just the icing on the cake. Yeah. I mean, imagine this whole cereal, except we go in with Edma mode and we say, no capes. In which... <laughs> Alpha Centauri doesn't have capes. None of the He-Man extras have capes. Peladon doesn't have a cape. It would be a totally different serial. Would it have been great if it was a collection of alien diplomats where all of them looked nefarious? Um, I'm thinking about <laughs> you, evil Christmas tree, back from Mission to the Unknown. <laughs> we had like some character designs like that because it is kind of a political thriller that we have going on here. And if it's going to be a whodunit or a who is involved with it, I would like everyone to look suspicious because Alpha Centauri does not look suspicious at all, especially with the voice. No, but the character is kind of a coward, so there's a possibility. And we do have the Ice Warriors, who we know from our history of the show are evil. And we have Arcturus, who is this evil-looking skull face thing and the most metal creature we have ever had in the show <laughs> right yes i was okay with alpha centauri not being like menacing you need some form of not comic relief because it's not comic relief but you don't want it to be overwhelmed with okay they're all evil and now we have to pick out which one is the most evil yeah yeah i agree with that one thing i do want to kind of draw on that riley said i think this is the most bizarre collection of creatures we've had in one story since the Daleks master plan. And it's wonderful. It's fantastic. I love it. I also love the Ars Warriors pretty much have the same <laughs> thing going on. They still got the Lego hands and they still got the booty. They've still got asthma. Yeah. And they have a bedazzled cape. You gotta fit in. Bedazzled though. Let's talk about the setup. When this story was made, Britain had been negotiating membership of the European Economic Community for years. It had been turned away multiple times because President Charles de Gaulle of France kept vetoing it. Well, he's been thrown out of office and there's a new French president who's a bit more open to it. It's actually a couple of days before the final episode that the House of Commons in the UK votes to join the European Economic Community. It's a very obvious parallel, and I kind of made fun of it a little, about Britain joining the EEC, which would later become the European Union, and Peladon joining the Galactic Federation. And those who are against it, like Hepesh, are kind of described as being a little bit regressive, kind of xenophobic. And I kind of like that it's doing something so paralleled without outright saying it. Like, if you know, you know, but if you're seven years old, like I was when I first saw this story, you have no clue. It's because it's not a one-to-one -one match. Right. But the theme that they're working with can apply to a bunch of different things. Exactly. Subtlety in writing, something that is very good. And I enjoy when, when it was on Doctor Who. <laughs> I feel like we've been getting a little more of that in the Pertwee era. In season eight, we talked about shades of consumerism and, and so on in the Claws of Axos. And here you've got some very obvious social commentary, but it's, to your point, it's a little bit more subtle. Speaking of kind of like setting up story and everything, the Doctor and Joe come in right after they said that that part of the curse was a stranger will come. And I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. hey, look, there's the stranger. But they didn't make that connection, surprisingly, because they immediately identify him as the Earth Delegate. I find that entertaining. And then Joe becomes a princess. Princess Josephine of TARDIS. 
also very old school them getting into a situation and lying about who they are. And it's good to see Joe just runs with it. She doesn't need like any affirmation from the doctor. She just jumps right in. Did a great job too. Yes, absolutely. She did a really good job. So I love that. And then we get that quick little view of the sabotage going on. Yes. I loved that, although things come to light a little bit later that it's like, well, that's an interesting thing that happened. And then we see the pig statue. <laughs> the bear pig. Bear pig. Man bear pig. <laughs> and that's where we get our uh, cliffhanger. So episode two. Thankfully, everyone is safe and the doctor saves the ice warriors, even though he was initially very suspicious of them. How nice of him. Very polite. And Joe has the most adorable sneezes. <laughs> It was adorable. And I was like, oh, Joe. <laughs> I called it pretty quickly that Peladon was going to want to marry Joe. That was like a, an immediate, I was like, oh, no, this is going to happen, isn't it? There's no other women in the serial. Yes. How can you expect the king to get married if you don't surround him with women? He needs to be able to choose. He can't just magically have one appear. And I'm glad that Anthony brought this up in his short summary because seriously, my mother was an earth woman. So you see there's a bond between us. A little bit of advice. I'm not exactly some sort of Casanova, but if you're flirting with someone, don't mention that they have anything in common with your mother. Don't do that. That doesn't work. Yes. Let me just write that down. <laughs> hey, my father once knocked up an earth lady. So you see, this is like totally cool, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's not the most suave line, is it? That's what makes it funny, though, because you can tell he's never been around women or yeah. anyone besides these old people. He thinks he's being cool. Yeah. But part of what I like about this is another theme of this serial. He's trying to grow and learn who he's really supposed to be because he's had these two basically old men with very different views whispering in his ears his entire life. And this is part of his process of learning to be his own man. I really enjoyed that aspect of it and that he had his own opinions, though, and he was willing to listen to other people as much as possible. Obviously, there are a few things where he's like, well, flaws, these things dictate that I do something. I'm not happy about it. I wish the laws were different. So he at least acknowledges that even as king, there are things that are out of his hands. But you can see that it like preys at his conscience. And I, I enjoyed that aspect of him. It definitely feels like he spent more time listening to and placed greater trust in Torvis than he ever did in Hepesh. So I can kind of see why Hepesh is trying to kill people to get his way, because he's a little bit snubbed. Not that I think it's right, but he's clearly kind of gone, this is the only way to get people to do what I want them to do. So yeah, Peladon's clearly already like, you're a superstitious old fool. <laughs> to go on to another topic, I liked some of the direction that was done, and I liked the close-ups. Mm -hmm. that were done. I really liked Joe whenever she's talking with Peladon and trying to get him to do things and they do those close-ups. Katie Manning, man, her acting, this is like the highlight of her acting so far. She did such a good job in the serial and I applaud her. But then we also got shots of the doctor's face and shadow and just his facial structure captured that so well. So I thought they did a really good job with the close-ups. It's amazing what Katie Manning can do when she's actually given things to do. Yeah, it's yeah. wonderful. Let's talk about Arcturus suddenly <laughs> getting sabotaged. Uh, I freaking love Arcturus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not surprised. It's such an odd design because we've gone through and we've got a lot of people in suits through the history of Doctor Who. And now we have this thing, which 
I don't know how messed up your planet is if you think this guy is going to be a great delegate. <laughs> he might be the calmest one that they have. The calmest and most handsome. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching it and thinking, how the hell does that even evolve? <laughs> uh. <laughs> you see, I keep wondering, I don't think that's an evolution. I mean, was there some sort of accident? Mutation, perhaps? Are they like the Daleks, where they've had terrible things happen, and now they're in these weird survival things? I don't know, but I thought it was an awesome design. Yeah. We also find out that Alpha Centauri identifies as they-them. Yes, yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. A hermaphrodite hexapod. Yes. Yes. Oh. And I absolutely adored the scene that when the doctor was tensely questioning Hepesh, Alpha Centauri behind was backing him up like, yes, yes. And I was like, <laughs> this is going to be like the best hype man ever for like a rap group. <laughs> Alpha Centauri. Yeah, boy. <laughs> Another thing that happened a lot is Joe has gotten better at sneaking around most of the time, because she's able to casually walk off screen and be like, all right, I'm going somewhere and no one notices. But she's really bad at hiding so she can get away. But then when she's hidden, she doesn't think things through. Well, that's why she had to get so good at escapology, because her <laughs> stealth was terrible. <laughs> but you're right. I love the way she goes, I'm going to investigate this. And she does more of the heavy lifting than the doctor does. Yes. The first time we've had that. And of course, she finds the device that the doctor finds to be of Ice Warrior design or, or having some kind of mineral from Mars or something. So that then sets her up nicely to go to the Ice Warrior's quarters where she finds the missing component of Arcturus after he's been sabotaged and, to your point, hides terribly and immediately gets caught. And at this point, <laughs> I feel like it's almost too obvious that it's the Ice Warriors. They're not quite as moustache twirling as this story would have them. What was interesting is that they showed the like footprints that kind of looked like Ice Warriors, and the component was also looked like Ice Warriors. But we know that it was one of the guards of Peladon. I don't know if they had names other than Grun. That was who was up there who actually knocked over the statue. So I wonder, like, did they steal Ice Warrior shoes? Probably made them. I want to know where they got the Ice Warrior device. Did they steal it? I mean, they were able to get into their rooms because they left Arcturus's thing there. Oh, so yeah. they probably just went into the room and, and stole it as well. They need better security around these delicates. De delicates? Delegates, even. They were rather delicate delegates. Yes. Oh. I mean, as soon as the first thing went wrong, they were panicking and wanting to leave. There's a lot of tunnels, so maybe there was a tunnel that led directly into the room. I don't know. Speaking of tunnels, we do get the Doctor being led into them by Grun at this point. That is in episode two. The first time. Yes. Yes, the first time. And then Grun runs off in fear when he hears Agador roaring. Before they gave like a full shot of Agador, I really enjoyed it. I was like, man, it's kind of really menacing compared to other monsters that we've seen in the past, like some of those dragons or other lizard type creatures. So I actually was like, oh, this monster, they actually did a pretty good job of. I have some questions a little bit later on about it, but the first looks and glimpses that we get of it, I enjoyed. Yeah. Can we talk about Joe and her inability to avoid capture again? 
because she escapes out the window, does some death-defying scaling along the edge of the castle to get out of the Ice Warrior's room and is recaptured almost immediately. And also the problem I had with that is the Ice Warrior that catches her in the quarters seems to make it very clear to her that he is leaving her there to show the other Ice Warrior why does she think he's outside the door? Why didn't she why did she go out the window? Just go out the door. He's not guarding it. He left. He made it seem pretty clear he was not gonna I think he said he was gonna lock her in the in the room. Oh, okay. Alright. If I, I must have missed the locking then okay, fair enough. Then that's a good reason to go out the window. And to be fair, she doesn't know where she's going. Or the way out of the castle. So she's leaving, and I really like that shot of her scaling the outside, and then goes back in. I'll forgive her this one. I will as well. But what I like about it is that, as mentioned before, Joe is more central to the plot than the Doctor is. Yes. And it's been a long time since we've had a companion have this much to do, and I rather enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, she's the one who finds out from the Ice Warriors that Arcturus would have been fine. She's the one that finds out how they've rejected violence except in self-defense and they're no longer truly warriors. And she then has to convey that to the Doctor later, which I assume happens off screen. And meanwhile, the Doctor gets to run around a maze in the tunnels with Agador roaring until he stumbles into the Temple of Agador. And Hepesh really wants the Doctor dead. Yep, or at least out of the way. Cliffhanger! Episode 3. Once again, Peladon really shows himself to be an absolute terrible ruler and a complete wimp. So <laughs> I already made fun of him for his horrible flirtation with Joe earlier, but now he's acting like a creep. He acts like, cannot do it. I cannot stop. The only thing you have is trial by combat. That's what's coming up. There's no defense for what the doctor did for being in the shrine or the temple or whatever they call it. And then when everyone leaves, he has this scene with Joe. And then he says, oh, wait, you know what? I can't help the doctor. Actually, you know what? I can if you marry me. What a douchebag. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what? What I love about it is that Joe calls him out on it. Right. And that's what's beautiful about it is because she's like, she takes no crap from him. She's like, you are kind of awful. And she's like, there's no connection between duty and the man. And he's like, no. And I'm like, oh. Okay, here we go. And Joe was like, nope, I'm not having any of this. And she's done. Yes, he's kind of awful, but also at the same time, that highlights Joe. So that's who we yeah. care about. We will get to this in episode four, but through the first couple interactions, the scenes between the two of them, I really felt that we were going in the direction of a Lisa Simpson, Martin Prince kind of relationship where she's just trying to put him down easy, not trying to break his heart because he's, well, for Martin Prince, because he was generally just a nice idiot. But with the Peladon, he has power and it could help her and help the doctor. But then we have that turnabout in the fourth episode that we'll get to, which I found a little disappointing. By the way, Katie Manning says that she almost fell in love with David Troughton during filming, and apparently he was head over heels with her as well, and they just never talked about it. Really? Because I'd heard they were dating during this serial. So her exact words were, We had lovely David Troughton, who is Patrick Troughton's son, playing the prince and he was stunning. I really did almost fall in love with him, and I didn't know it at the time, but he was quite besotted with me too. It sounds like they went on one date, but I don't think it was anything serious. How sad. They had good chemistry. One thing that's nice, and we mentioned that he's kind of awful if you listen to the words, but to that point, and knowing that, you can feel that there is chemistry between them. Mm -hmm. And that shines through. So yes, he's saying things that we're sitting here like, oh, well, he's a terrible person. 
but the actors make it convincing because you can feel that there's some sort of attraction between them. And it makes sense if the actors were that some of that would come across on screen. Exactly. And I feel it's important for him to kind of be a doofus here because of the arc his character goes through. He's you know, had to listen to these two different sides that are shaping him as a leader and kind of tell him what to do. Joe is that important third outside influence and meeting her and have her basically call him on his crap is what's going to enable him to be a better king in the future. And I would like to correct myself. I did not mean I said Martin Prince. What I meant to say was Ralph Wiggum. <laughs> and actually pinpoint the moment where his heart breaks. Exactly. That's what I was hoping for in episode for that moment, but it did not happen. We've gotten to a point where we can start talking about it. So the big things that happens is that the doctor saying, hey, there are tunnels. And Hepesh is saying, no, there are no tunnels. And Peladon is like, well, I'm not sure. Well, guess what? Let the doctor show you the tunnels. Problem solved. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> but apparently that was just too easy. Speaking of the Doctor, I love how once he has been told he has to fight Grun, his response is, my death will cause a major interplanetary scandal. He is such a blagger. <laughs> like, no, it won't. You're not the real ambassador or delegate or what have you. Like, no, one, no one's going to care. But they don't know that. They think that he is the delegate. So what he's trying to do is convince them, hey, you're going to cause an international incident. Like, you don't want this to happen. And he's doing that to save himself. Oh, I know. I just think it's funny because if he failed and he did die, he would have been completely found out. I think, you know, with this fight, I think the doctor could have ended easier if he knew some sort of weird martial art for another <laughs> planet. <laughs> it's really too bad he'd never taught himself that at some point. I have another flaw that I've seen. Federation rules. Their Federation rule says that everything has to be unanimous. The flaw is if one person disagrees, they then get their way because everyone <laughs> else is unanimous in the other side. Yeah. Just yeah. throwing that out there. That's a flaw. I think there's a lot of really pointed commentary <laughs> on politicians going here because in the story, they love to talk. They're complete cowards. And they are utterly useless when it comes to actually solving the problem. Yes. Very much so. That's not an accident. <laughs> it's not. It's something special. <laughs> I want to talk about the Doctor and Agador. <laughs> so first off. Do you want Agador to be a companion too? Is that just me? <laughs> He'll be like Scooby-Doo. Yes. He'll be like Scooby-Doo. I love one, the doctor singing, the doctor using empathy because he's like, this is an animal that's being mistreated and this is unfortunate. So I like that aspect of it as well. Then to comment on, on what the director and all of them wanted, I prefer that it's more bear and boar than it is an ape because one, apes are being overused. We just had them in Day of the Daleks and one of those creatures. And honestly, ape has bad connotations. So let's just move away from that right now. Yeah, that's fair. My question, Don, is why wasn't Doctor's song on our musical episode? Oh, <laughs> watch the shit. When the doctor's building his little hypnotic gadget and he almost hypnotizes himself, is that a part we gun? I'm glad you brought that up. I wrote that down. Yes, I agree. You got my vote. <laughs> We're counting it. Pertwee Gun. But I love that whole sequence. Let's talk more about Arcturus. Immediately after King Peladon has proposed to Joe to form an alliance, 
You have Arcturus try and convince everyone else that there will be an alliance between Earth and Peladon, and that will destroy the unity of the Federation. Literally, as Peladon has just proposed that exact thing. I'm like, the dude's not wrong at this point. No, and Arcturus is going to look out for Arcturus. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you mentioned that, because it showed him like listening in, Yeah. and I immediately was like, oh, is he the bad guy or a red herring? Well, my immediate thought was, it's probably Arcturus, who is the inside bad person, because uh, mm-hmm. Tepesh, you already knew, uh, so who is working with him. So I called it pretty early on. What I find really interesting is here in episode three, Hepesh says he's afraid of the Federation and he believes that the Peladonians will be enslaved and the planet stripped of its minerals. And he helps the Doctor escape so that there's not an interplanetary incident. But in the next episode, we find out that Arcturus is helping Hepesh because Arcturus's planet has no minerals. What's going to happen here? Peladon's not going to be part of the Federation, but it's still going to get stripped of its minerals by Arcturus's people. I don't understand how that benefits. That's because I think he's afraid the Federation will come in by force, but he's made a deal for a certain amount of minerals. That makes sense. He thinks just working with one, he can kind of control things because it's a one-on-one relationship as opposed to a one-to-many relationship. And he's kind of a fanatic. He's willing to make bargains he probably normally wouldn't because he is so afraid of things changing. That's true. This federation just doesn't seem very harmonious. It's not. Are any of them? (laughs) The one in Star Trek. (laughs) Do we want to talk about the final combat? Well, I think before we do that, we need to talk about what I had alluded to earlier, and that is the doctor is trying to hypnotize Agador. Joe sees them and comes running in thinking she's saving the doctor's life. The doctor calls her an idiot, but he doesn't just stay cranky. He softens and kindly tells Joe that she was very brave. Mm-hmm. Is it that hard, yeah. writers? Could we have done that from the very beginning? That didn't seem like that was that hard to write. You allow him to show his emotion, his frustration his anger, but then allow him to recompose himself, stand back, realize her perspective. Not that hard. Yeah. I'm glad they did it now. And we do have a fantastic Doctor moment, which is just as Hepesh is calling for him to be hunted and killed, he just prances into the throne room and tries (laughs) to discredit Hepesh and Agador, which I love. He's so triumphant there. And that leads us into the fight. Yeah, because they don't listen to him about the tunnels. As I mentioned before. So what was interesting about the combat with Grun, I wasn't sure if he actually was going to listen to Hepesh and actually go through with the fight. Because you've seen Grun work with the doctor, you know, showing him the tunnels and how to get in and things of that nature. So I was like, maybe Grun will actually just refuse to fight, which I thought would have been interesting. But that's not what was done. But we get to the fight. I love how it's shot. And I love the fact that there is no music during the fight. <laughs> it made it a bit more brutal, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, my head played that Star Trek battle theme that everyone I'm, knows. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because that's, again, a mark it down. Pertwee Shatner similarity number 23 now or so. <laughs> fighting to the death against someone dressed like a gladiator on an alien planet. <laughs> nice. Wonderful. To your point, Julie, the way it's shot, you get those glorious shots from above. You get a lot of close-ups as well. There were a few times when it was clearly Terry Walsh, John Pertwee's stunt double, standing in for him, but (laughs) it's really well done for the most part. And even down to the point of Hepesh kind of cheating by throwing Grun a sword, the odds are kind of stacked against the Doctor here. Grun is going to get help from outside and the Doctor is not. 
until the doctor nearly kills Grun and violently puts his head in between the rope. I was like, is the doctor going to do it? Is he actually going to strangle him to death? But no, he does what I would expect the doctor to do and say, no, I'm not going to kill you. This is one of the few things that I thought was shot poorly, this very end cliffhanger, because I was a little confused as to what was happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was like, Arcturus did what? And that's all I got, because (laughs) I just got confused by who was doing what. I think you were meant to. So Arcturus extends the weapon out from his tank. And then the Ice Warrior shoots first. I couldn't see the Ice Warrior shooting. That's where I got confused. That's kind of what I thought was meant to happen. It was meant to look like it was Arcturus shooting, and that's the cliffhanger because you're meant to think he shot the Doctor. But to me, I saw that it was the Ice Warrior shooting, and that just ruined the tension because they clearly know what's going on. If you didn't notice that, fantastic, because you got the tension that was meant to be there. Yeah, I totally missed that. Yeah, to me, it just looked they were both firing, but I wasn't quite sure exactly what was happening. In the original edit, Arcturus shot first. <laughs> <laughs> Episode, Episode four? four. By the way, the Ice Warrior gun effect. Remember in the Troughton era, it had like that glorious kind of scrunchy effect on the image, and here it's just some concentric red circles. I thought that was really disappointing. It's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Their weaponry has evolved. Yeah, it just didn't look as cool. I'd like to have seen that in colour. All right, so Arcturus is destroyed and Hepesh and his minions slink off and it was Arcturus all along. It was Arcturus all along. I said that in the hope you would sing it, Julie. (laughs) You're welcome. All right, what I found interesting here is we know that Hepesh is on the run, so immediately is what is Peladon going to do? (laughs) I'm glad you brought that up because once again, he shows himself to be a terrible leader. After having everything explained to him, as well as all the potential consequences, what does Peladon do? He looks at the doctor and asks the doctor what he should do. <laughs> what type of leader are you? Just he's whoever not. happens to be sitting next to you is, is is what you decide to do? That's what he's done his entire life. Oh my god. He sucks. Yes. See, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I cannot imagine how him leading this planet, I don't know how they're not going to get taken over in like a month two months and they join the Galactic Federation. Like he's going to get like taken by like a Nigerian print scam or something like in <laughs> no time at all. I think by themselves, they're more likely to be taken over because then they don't have any alliances to defend them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he knows he's got to replace Hepesh, but he's concerned that it will cause civil war. Well, guess what, Bo? Hepesh is coming in with his people anyway. There's going to be a civil war whether you want it or not. Just make the hard decision here. Jesus Christ. One thing I do enjoy, though, is as other things are happening, the interaction between Centauri and the Ice Warriors is magic. Like, I love it. (laughs) I love Centauri just having fits, and I love the Ice Warriors being like, oh my god, I just like... I can imagine this in real life, like just, I don't know. It's wonderful. I think it's a wonderful relationship and it makes me laugh so hard. I need to bring up the obvious thing talking about Centauri, the camp count. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. How many points does Alpha Centauri get on the camp count? (laughs) Because it's not one. It's definitely more than one. (laughs) I think Alpha Centauri plainly is the campest thing we've seen in Doctor Who to date. I think that's fair. Are they a five? Are they more like a ten? What are we thinking here? I don't mind as much, so like I would go with five. All right. I'm fine with five. I don't think the specific number matters. Didn't bother me, but yeah, pretty camp. All right. 
We're going with five. I like the fact that even Joe told Centauri to shut up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's glorious. And then when she finally gets everyone to agree and Centauri was like, make sure that it's noted that I did this under protest. <laughs> I accept no responsibility. No shit. <laughs> Don, you sounded a lot like Tubbs then. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing, we then get to a point where back in part two, part three, when Arcturus was talking to the Federation guys and was saying, this marriage thing is a terrible, terrible idea. And they all agreed that it was a terrible, terrible idea. And then all of a sudden, they're like, hey, Joe, aren't you guys getting married? Well, this would be good. This would be a good thing for you guys to get married. And I was like, when did they change their minds? Once Arcturus is no longer whispering in their ears about it <laughs> yeah. unbalancing the Federation. Which, because let's be honest, Peladon's clearly going to be a big player in the Federation that would tip <laughs> the balance of power in Earth's favour. To be fair, though, one, the Doctor's going to get Agador. Yes. We get that. And Grun yes. helps with that. But Hepesh comes back with his guards. He attacks and poor Peladon watches everything fall apart. Yeah, Hepesh storms the Citadel. And in his attempted coup, did anyone kind of have flashbacks of the beginning of 2021 with that? Was that just me? <laughs> That's probably just you. I try not to think about that. There's another tenuous link to politics that Brian Hales had no idea about in 1971. So we get more of the doctor singing. Yes. This is where things got a little weird for me. So we had gotten glimpses of Agador throughout all of this. For some reason, Agador... Standing side by side next to the doctor seemed a lot smaller than I originally thought Agador <laughs> yes. was. That's a good point. I wrote this down. Did they put someone else in the Agador costume? Was he not available <laughs> for this episode? What happened? Why did they change it? It must have been how they shot it. Yeah. I have a question that probably only Riley will get the reference to, but when Hepesh tries to command Agador, had Agador perhaps been taking lessons from Jamie Vardy? Chat shit, get banged. <laughs> It seemed that way. Like, he's just like, I'm having none of this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it seems like despite him only being quelled by the doctor, he could have literally attacked anyone else in the room. But mm -hmm. <laughs> right on to Hepesh. Yeah, I really like that because Agador was the instrument that Hepesh was using to promote his ideals. And the fact that he is destroyed by that same instrument just makes sense. Also, when you think about it, you know, this is a wild animal that Hepesh is fundamentally abusing. Mm -hmm. There's kind of some poetry to it that Agador is the one who dispatches Hepesh and kind of recognizes what's been done to him. It's very similar to, you know, being killed by your own creature, mm -hmm. that type of thing. It's It all runs in that similar vein. And then it was mentioned Hound of the Baskervilles. Yeah. Kind of touches on that quite a bit here, especially here at the end. I thought it was just very poetic and very similar to what other well-written like prose has done in the past. Agreed. And then poor Peladon has lost both of his advisors, and I think he was very recently made king, so I am actually sitting here saying he's going to have a rough time, but I think that this was a huge learning thing for him and that he's has nowhere but up to go. And I think it's very interesting that he very quickly recognizes that Hepesh was the figurehead and that his men were being led by him, but didn't necessarily believe in what Hepesh believed. So him pardoning them shows that he knows when to grant clemency. And I think says a lot about how he's going to be as a ruler. Yeah. 
I think he's learned a lot. Absolutely. Can we talk about Agador following the Doctor round after <laughs> everything has been resolved? I think that's just the cutest thing ever. I love Agador. I want Agador as a companion. <laughs> he gets his own room. Yes. And they're going to get him lots of treats and he's going to have a special bed. And yeah, they as long as he's treated well. Here we go. Here's the spinoff. Agador, Miss Hawthorne and Griffin the chef. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> And Benton. Uh, and Benton. I have, have Benton in there somewhere. I have to have Benton in there. The adventures of those four together. <sighs> oh, chef's kiss. <laughs> yes, on purpose. So we're starting to wrap things up. We've got Peladon actually asking, hey, and Joe's like, but I'm not even a princess. I don't care. There are no other women here. <laughs> Come on. I'm glad that Katie Manning didn't want to leave the show, because if she did, you know that she would have stayed. Oh, yeah. Yes. Or that... Barry Letts and Terrence Sticks didn't want to write Joe out the show at this point because she would have got Vickied. Mm -hmm. What I liked about this was that through everything, and yes, you know, we can talk about how he was still kind of terrible about things. There was still something likable about Peladon. He's a little dumb, but <laughs> it's not because he's ill-meaning or anything like that. So I enjoyed the fact that it wasn't a completely pointless romance. And I love the fact that she was like, the doctor said to go and she's like, I actually think I should. That I enjoyed a lot. Oh, yeah. I thought it was really because you could tell that she, part of her wanted to stay there, but she made the right choice. 100%. There was a little chemistry, but culturally, I think they were worlds apart. And his behavior towards her in a lot of this shows that they would have had to work a lot to get their marriage to work. <laughs> She'd have whipped him into shape. <laughs> I hope so. Yes. And then we get the Earth Delegate. Uh, oh, that was good. Which one, I'm really sad that she wasn't around longer because we would have had another woman on screen. But at least she seemed very competent. But she lays out the witch doctor. Doctor who? Julie, to your point, it does bring another woman in, but not just another woman. The Earth Delegate is the lead delegate. So you have a person in a position of real power and it's a woman. And I think that says a lot about the role of women in this future with this federation. Absolutely. Just wish she was in more of the episode. Yes. We do get at least one more woman when we return to Peladon in season 11. I promise you. Perfect. And they leave just in time. Yes. And I like that parting shot of their faces just like dumbstruck by the TARDIS disappearing. And the ice where you're holding out his arm a little too long while pointing at it. Yes. That was fun. <laughs> I actually really like it. And, you know, she should be over the moon. She's got nothing to do. The doctor's come in, sorted it all out. Job done. <laughs> all right. You got paid for a flight. You get to go home again. Awesome. All right. Should we rate this? Julie, you get to start this time. I really enjoyed this serial. Not going to lie. It has its faults. But we get callbacks to Hartnell era. We get callbacks to Troughton era. We get Joe very involved with things at this point. We got the doctor who's not being a dick anymore. We don't have an overuse of synthesizer. There's just a lot of things that I enjoyed. There's a few plot holes, so to speak, but I thought it was really well done and really well directed. Some of those shots were fantastic. So I'm going to give it 8 out of 10 thigh-high boots. Okay, Riley, you're up next. I also quite enjoyed this one. Good setting, fast pace, bizarre aliens, a decent little diplomatic thriller plot. Joe gets a lot to do, and thankfully it isn't just pushing away the advances of the king. Most importantly, the doctor is so much better in this. He is less irritable, more relaxed, and he treats Joe kindly. 
This is a wonderful change from where we were not too long ago. We have the Doctor and the Companion actually liking each other's company, both being active in an unusual alien world with strange creatures and resolving a conflict with words and brands rather than some long, drawn-out unit shootout. I give it... Eight Klokira Partha Minin Klatch Harun Harun Haruns out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Don, over to you. I enjoyed this story on multiple levels more than any we've watched in a while. And in order to celebrate this, I am gonna read the letter I wrote and sent back in time to the BBC to get some changes. <laughs> Dear BBC, please make the doctor less of an ass or bring back Troughton. Don't be cute. You know the one I mean. Make sure Dutters <laughs> takes his meds before you have him write the score. That's really important. So you could have maybe some sort of a mystery with a spooky castle. That would be great. For goodness sake, give Joe something to do despite, you know, not just being captured and escaping. Oh, and sorry about the penis doodle. That's not a suggestion. Thanks. <laughs> Love and kisses, Don. Love and kisses, Don. And just to screw up whatever Anthony's about to say, I'm going to give it nine and a half uncomfortable conversations with your costume designer out of ten. Wow. Oh, boy. All right. Don made reference because we had been texting a little about this earlier, and I had said that I was distinctly met on this. And I was. I felt about this like Don did, I think, about the crusade. But in talking about it, I've kind of reevaluated it. One of us. One of us. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be quite as high as you guys, but I'm seeing its merits quite broadly. I must have been in a mood when I was watching it, in all honesty. It was very, very well directed, as the point has been made. Joe's finally given things to do. We see a softer side of the Doctor. We have a wonderful menagerie of weird creatures for the first time in a long time. It's off-world. We've got the creepy castle, the atmospheric opening. It's a little bit of a murder mystery. It works on so many levels. Again, I can only assume that when I watched this over the weekend, I was in a bad mood. Maybe because I'd had a little too much to drink the night before and wasn't feeling that great. So that might totally be on me. With that in mind, I was originally going to give this like a six. But it's definitely worthy of a lot more than that. I think I am going to give it seven and a half heads in jars out of 10, which gives a story average of 8.25 out of 10, which makes it our third highest of the Pertwee era behind only the Demons and Inferno. So it's in pretty good company there unless you're Don and you didn't enjoy Inferno. I found Inferno <laughs> overrated, that's all. <laughs> that brings us to the end of the episode. We will be back next time around when we will be talking about the Sea Devils. But until then, thank you as always for listening. We appreciate you tuning in and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippeck, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Arcturus Shot First, was recorded on Wednesday the 24th of November 2021. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can also interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at Watchers4D, and you can email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. 
If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, sometimes tweaks to make a costume less inappropriate can have the opposite effect.